So thank you for coming back after yesterday. Welcome to our uh, third session. Uh, hopefully today we will go more into the detail of what we've done and what we are doing in our project in terms of application of certain methods. Uh, but please, um, all, the, all we're going to talk about from now on is going to be about welfare regimes and about Espinandes in theory, but uh, most of these methods, actually, all of them, have been successfully applied in other types of comparative research, and um, we will try to bridge a bit, uh, especially with Mark's presentation, into how use and apply these methods in order to integrate macro and microanalysis. So uh, uh, this session does not have to be considered only uh, an approach to ideal types and welfare regimes, but also a way to looking at potentially other type of analysis. And, uh, and these methods and this kind of deductive approach uh, can be applied also, um, also to other, um, other type of issues and other type of literatures, which you're probably more interested on. And I know that somebody is interested in welfare state literature, but it's not, it's not the, only, the only way of approaching, of approaching this problem. So um, the first session of this morning is going to be about ideal types and welfare regimes. So how yesterday we were discussing a lot and in a sense getting a bit kind of frustrated by saying, okay, we can apply many methods, we can do anything we want, we can be transparent with stuff. But very often, actually I would say always, there are always drawbacks, drawbacks in each method we use, in each approach we use. And there is always something which is going to make us unhappy if, if you're kind of uh, doing research properly. However, uh, in the session of this morning, we're going to try to look at a way in which we can try to get more satisfied about what we do. And in my opinion, a good way of coping with it, especially in political science and in sociology, is to increase the level of abstraction. So try to have a very strong deductive framework uh, on the basis in order to try to disentangle reality. Now, uh, some people might not agree with it. Actually, a lot of people might not agree with it. And, for example, if I think about anthropologists, we think that this is madness. Having a very strong deductive framework be before investigating reality, it's a way of closing ourselves in a box. However, if you look at things from a different side, a side of somebody who wants to understand a macro system, as we're trying to do in this project, uh, things are a bit different. And having a strong deductive framework in a kind of Weberian uh, way might help to overcome some of the issues we were discussing yesterday at a theoretical level, because only with methods we cannot probably overcome overcome this problem. So this is the ambitious aim of this first lecture, so to kind of offer um, a first application of this type of problem. The next session instead is going to be more applied, and we're going to see how multiple correspondence analysis helped us in solving a certain type of problem in the uh, wealth regime literature. However, it didn't solve all our problems, and we will try going on in the next session, solving all the little problems we find, but showing that at the end there is not a perfect solution, and uh, that's one of the reasons why we keep we keep doing keep doing research. The agenda for today. Here we are. So the agenda for today is first of all uh, discussing Espinosa and classification because I know uh, some of you know it, but some people might have might not have heard of it and. So it's good to familiarize with this type of literature because the majority of our examples in the other four sessions are going to be about this business because this is the business in which we've been particularly interested in this project. Secondly, we're going to look a bit at the empirical work that has been done in this business. So before approaching multiple correspondence analysis in the next session, we're going to uh, discuss now uh, how this problem has been approached by using descriptive statistics how it has been approached by using cluster analysis and how it has been approached by using principal component analysis and why we, we have chosen in one of our articles multiple correspondence analysis to deal, to deal with this problem. And finally, we will go in the last bit, which we call regime futures and in our article as well, uh, because these are like, you know, we kind of try to theoretically understand which are the drawbacks of this business and how certain things can be fixed. Uh, we then realize that some of the advice we give in this paper are not really they're really the right ones, but, um, you know, tough luck. So, first part, so Espinales and classification. So, um, this is just a little Google research uh, to show you certain things. So, here you have a very famous book uh, in the broad field of social policy slash comparative politics. 
So we have historical approach, theoretical approaches, and you know, very important books. So we have very famous T.H. Uh, Marshall collection of essays on social citizenship and social class, Titmus essays on the welfare state from which Espin Anderson started from, uh, in terms of uh, putting countries into different classes and different boxes. Then we have uh, another, another, another famous book, which is a very different approach, which is Arold Vilensky, uh, for people who know the welfare state and equality, in which Arold Vilensky kind of refuted the idea of classifying countries, and instead they tried to look at how inequality impacts on the structure of the welfare state. Therefore, an approach based more on regression uh, and using more, more countries rather than one based on clustering different type of countries. Then we have another famous book, you see the Scottville 1992 Protecting Soldiers and Mother, which is a comparative, one of the most famous comparative historical analysis in social policy. Then we have Paul Pearson Dismantling the Welfare State, 1994 book. And then Olin Soski's Varieties of Capitalism, looking a bit of a different literature, which talks a lot to the comparative, comparative social policy literature. And finally, Espin Anderson. What you can see in this is that almost, almost every comparative work in social policy does cite Espin Anderson. Now, you know, somebody might think this is a fashion. Somebody might think this book is not good enough. However, this book is influential, uh, whatever we think about it. Therefore, uh, reasoning about this type of typologies uh, makes sense because this is something that people are been keeping questioning and people keep working on, at least uh, from our point of view. Uh, some of the reviewers we had recently for our papers do not often or do not always have the same, the same thought. Um, first of all, why I was telling you that uh, yesterday we, we were emphasizing many problems in the discussion, and uh, I would like today, I mean, please do not limit your question to what we are talking about in the session, but, you know, we can, we can go back to what we were discussing yesterday as well because it was very interesting. And what we think is that one way, one way to overcome uh, the problems we were discussing yesterday with our methods and the insatisfaction we can have with our methods is to have a broad deductive framework and have a kind of deductive reasoning uh, in order to understand reality. Espin Anderson has certainly applied this principle to welfare regime literature, looking at Max Weber um, ideal types. So the construction of a system of abstract reasoning is the only means of analyzing and intellectually mastering the complexity of social life. Again, you know, only means, you might not share this, but it is certainly a way of trying to understand a complex social reality. So basically, if you think about, it's like kind of applying a scientific method huh, to sociology and social sciences, so reducing the complexity of the world we are looking, trying to disentangle the most important aspect that determine a certain, a certain reality. Second, the, the three world of welfare capitalism and welfare regime literature speaks a lot to broad, the broad framework of traditional political economy. As we will see, Espin Anderson will talk about three worlds, the social democratic world, uh, the conservative world or Christian democratic, and the liberal world. All these three broad political movements have a, their origin in political economy. So liberalism, you can think about the work of Adam Smith. Um, for conservatives, you can think about the work of List. And for what concerns social democracy and socialism, you can think about the work of Marx. So in a sense, there is a strong link between broad theoretical frameworks, political movements, and the construction of social policy. And the greatness of Espin Anderson's work is to have connected all these broad ideas with an empirical measurement of how welfare state can be classified. Now we will see that this type of measurement has many, many flows. However, uh, and uh, I personally think that despite the methodological weaknesses, this framework remains interesting to understand uh, uh, reality. The work on Espin Anderson didn't stop. So uh, Espin Anderson's book is a 1990 book. After him, other people have tried to look theoretically and empirically at these typologies and have added other words. For example, Castles has added the radical word, including uh, New Zealand and Australia. We will see more in detail this uh, additional classification as far as we go on. Then Stephen Leipfried, uh, Professor Bremen, he added up the idea that there's the existence of a Mediterranean model, and together with him, uh, although here, yesterday we were talking about language, right? So Leipzig and Maurizio Ferreira wrote similar stuff in the same period, but Ferreira wrote them in Italian, 
and Leipzig in English, therefore probably Leipzig is credited for the idea of thinking about a Mediterranean model, uh, but you can think that an Italian, an Italian scholar is probably more brought to think about the existence of, an, of a Mediterranean model by observing the differences between Italy and other conservative countries. And then we have other interesting extension, especially for people who you are interested in Southeast Asia, uh, in, a, in a very famous article, Goodman and Pank, in an in a, in a edited volume by Espin Anderson in 1986 books, they started to talk about the East Asian, the East Asian model of welfare state as a different type of model for, because you know, if we think about political movements, it's hard to put in the same classification European political movements with Southeast Asian political movements, although some people, for example, associate Japan, uh, Espin Anderson has associated Japan with a Christian democratic model, with a conservative model. However, in, this, in another article in the 1997 published in the Journal of European Social Policy, Espin Anderson questioned even his own classification, you know, trying to, to, to understand what Japan was and finally concluding that Japan was something different or something interesting to analyze because not completely... Uh, um, approachable from, from a European lens, from the lens of the European political movements. Therefore, this framework, it's easily, easily, I mean, it is applicable to Western Europe and all the kind of former colonies, countries like Canada, US, New Zealand, and Australia, which are very similar political movements, but it's harder to apply to a country like Japan or Korea. Then there have been scholars who have emphasized the existence of other words connected to different types of social policy. Because we will see that Espin Anderson didn't analyze every single social policy, but has chosen a particular approach by choosing certain policy and especially focusing on cash transfers and not on all services. Uh, there have been other people formulating topology with education. Quite recently, Buzemeyer and Nikolai and Elfke. Klaus Bent and, and Raebling uh, on the Journal of European Social Policy have done expressed typologies on different fields. And also here I forget to mention, but Claire Bambra uh, uh, built up also a, a quite famous typology in healthcare um, together with other, with other typologies. So broad reflection, broad reflection around these topics after, after Espin Anderson. Uh, but why, again, this approach is interesting and it's a good example to approach comparative methods. First of all, classifications have an importance. Classification have an importance in terms of approaching reality. Uh, people among you, I mean, we have anthropologists here. I don't know if we have any historian, but like, there are people who believe that a deductive approach is not good. As I was saying before, it's an approach that doesn't allow us to discuss to discuss reality. So other people believe that it's better to have a nominalist approach, an approach which is case by case. Well, Martin yesterday called it idiosyncratic. I will be a bit more, uh, probably less judgmental in this respect and saying that uh, they don't believe in the idea of broad, broad comparison, believing that each society, each group has different dynamics that need to be analyzed. Social policy, though, in a sense, before Espin Anderson, has been dominated by a lot of analysis, idiosyncratic cases, if we want or not, but Fewer studies were focusing on comparing different countries, or at least comparing different things, different type of programs, uh, probably with the exception of Titmus that we were emphasizing, before social policy was deeply nationalized between brackets. So you had Marshall, who was, of course, talking about social citizenship, but mainly speaking to uh, a UK public and talking about the United Kingdom. Arav Vilensky, focusing on many countries, but then describing at the end, especially the United States, and so forth. So starting to apply deductive reasoning and ideal types helped to have a broader vision and start, and start to, compare, to compare countries. What is interesting is that even people that refuse Espin Anderson, even people who deeply criticize Espin Anderson for his approach, at the end of the day, they use him. Because even when you analyze a single country very often, you use examples from other reality. You use classifications or kind of broad way of speaking uh, uh, to, understand, to understand a certain reality. Just to give you an example from another field in history, right? History is the kind of the inductive discipline by definition together with anthropology, right? And historian, especially people who, who want to look at, you know, what happened in the past, they need to be very inductive because they need to work with what they have very often. However, 
even in a very inductive discipline as history can be considered, people use ideal types. Think about, for example, the concept of enlightenment or the concept of mercantilism. All these concepts are ideal types. There was not an age as enlightenment. There was not the Middle Ages. It is something, it's an ideal type that has been used to describe a broad reality and compare different situations with this broad ideal type. So, for example, when we talk about the Renaissance and we think about the Italian city-states, we're using an ideal type. We are talking about a general model of uh, race of cities and democracy and whatever, whatever we want to analyze at an historical level, but we compare them with a general ideal type, which is the one of Renaissance. So a broad period to describe a certain social phenomenon. The example is, again, to say, even if we are analyzing a little case of, I don't know, very few people in a very specific context, implicitly or explicitly, we are comparing that with other contexts and with general concepts, which are ideal types, which are instruments that we use in order to understand in order to understand reality. Therefore, even when Espin Anderson has been criticized, at the end of the day, the same people used often his work as a heuristic device to understand the specific case, or at least to make the reader understanding what they were doing and what they were talking about. Um, interestingly, uh, the concept of ideal types, though, in this fashion has been misused often. So some people believe, really believe, that when Espin Anderson was talking about social democracy or social democratic welfare states, they were talking about specific countries. In reality, there is not a kind of uh, ideal type, a country that can be assimilated. So an ideal type that can be a real type, like Sweden, for example. Maybe Sweden and the US get very close to what Espin Anderson told about a liberal and a social democratic model. However, these countries have embedded in them different elements of other models. Right? So... You can consider these ideal types like landmarks that Espin Anderson has used in order to say, look, uh, if we divide the world in three parts and assuming that the ideal characteristic of a social democratic model are this, this, and that, Sweden, Denmark, and Norway are very close to this ideal type. But they are not uh, the ideal type. Therefore, many people have analyzed in the literature Espin Anderson typologies, like if these ideal types were a perfect reality, an exact description um, of reality. But Espin Anderson, as I was telling you, he never thought about it. He never, he never, he never assimilated his models with uh, ideal types and real types. And we can see a quote, a quote from his book. So we showed a welfare state cluster, but we must recognize that there is no single pure case. So there is not a social democratic country, there is not a Christian democratic country, there is not a liberal country. The Scandinavian countries might be predominantly social democratic, but they are not free of crucial liberal elements. We will see, for example, in the case of Denmark, that Denmark embedded in its system some, some feature, some liberal feature in the, way, in the way the welfare state is managed. Although the universalism of the system let us to say that Denmark is a social democratic country in Spinanism classification. Neither are liberal regimes pure types. The American social security system is redistributive, compulsory, and far from actuarial. At least in its early formulation, the New Deal was a social democratic as was contemporary Scandinavian social democracy. Uh, if you think, for example, about uh, unemployment protection for, uh, for metal workers in the United States, you would see that this is not really a kind of liberal way of approaching uh, uh, unemployment protection. And European conservative regimes have incorporated both liberal and social democratic impulses. Think about the National Healthcare Service. There are many countries which are not social democratic. They don't have a universal system of benefits in unemployment protection, but then they have a national healthcare service. I would say most of them. Over the decades, they've become less corporatist and less authoritarian. So even Germany for example, when we think about this Bismarckian model and the Christian democratic model, it's not a pure model, and it is a model that, that has changed a lot. So, as I was saying, over the past decades, Espin Anderson has established a very good connection between classical political economy and the analysis of social security <coughs> programs. And this is, again, a way of simplifying reality in order to understand it. It's a device that Espin Anderson has used to put together 
a huge bulk of literature in social security and in social policy. Um, and as I was saying, it captured the long-standing influence and the ideational approaches coming from, um, from uh, political economy. Going to the concept. So how Espin Anderson uh, did, classify, did classify different wealth regimes. This is another interesting feature of Espin Anderson if you look at our puzzle. So Espin Anderson has ideal types. So we have the social democratic, the Christian democrat, and the liberal countries. Then Espin Anderson used concept, two important concepts, uh, two concepts that again come from traditional political economy in order to have... Um, a kind of criteria, two criteria, to classify countries around the political movements we are describing. So the first concept, and then we will see, uh, we will see in the next session that Espin Anderson added up a third uh, criteria to classify countries, but we will discuss that later. So the first one is decommodification. So Espin Anderson defined decommodification as the extent to which Individuals and family can afford an acceptable standard of living independently of market participation. There is a fantastic article by Graham Room in uh, and, um, Policy and Politics, a 2000 article, in which Graham Room explained at a theoretical level how the decommodification concept speaks to all a tradition of political economy literature. So, you know, starting from Marx especially, when, why a worker is commodified, why a worker is decommodified. And, you know, we can, discuss, we can discuss if this concept is a bit biased because, you know, Scandinavian countries answer very well to this idea of decommodification and therefore if using this criteria as an impact on the way we classify countries. However, what is interesting is that Espin Anderson used a criteria to classify countries, which is a criteria that comes from a very long-standing literature. It is a criteria that is embedded in traditional political so what Espin Anderson has done, which made people very interested in this work, is that after defining all this theoretical framework, he also tried to empirically apply this and measure what decommodification is, so give a score for decommodification for different countries. So uh, we will see that this is going to be useful more afterwards. I will go quickly on that. So how Espin Anderson measured decommodification? This is very important because... Yesterday we were talking about problems of catching, capturing a complex reality. Espin Anderson gave a, an exact definition. Forget about functional equivalence. He compared every country in the same way and look at what he called the cash nexus. So uh, the, 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 the money transfer into three specific areas of social policy in order to categorize countries in general. So in order to describe a more complicated welfare state. So he used decommodification with certain indicators in order to classify countries, even to talk about other... Oh, good. Um, even, to, even to categorize, even to categorize other, um, other, other countries and other policies. So these three policies are the pension, so cash transfer from pensions for old age pensions, cash transfer for unemployment protection, and cash transfer for sickness, which represent a good share of the amount of money that is spent in the welfare state, but it's not all, not at all. Another interesting innovation of Espin Anderson is that before him, if you think about the seminal work of Vilensky, uh, social policy until then was quantified and analyzed looking at expenditure. Uh, yesterday, Martin was pointing out how looking at expenditure can be problematic for many reasons, because, for example, France spend more than Sweden, but the Swedish welfare state is much more generous than the French one, for many reasons that we are not going <laughs> to talk about now. But, um, so Espin Anderson generated a, a measurement of the generosity intended as ability to decommodify the worker. And this index is based on pension, unemployment protection, and sickness. It gave, us, it gave different scores to different things. So you use the waiting period, so the time you need to wait in order to get to access to your benefit, the duration of this type of benefit, and he weighted twice the replacement rate. So for example, um, uh, he evaluate with a score from one to three the generosity of the replacement rate when you get unemployed, or when you, when you are a pensioner, or when you're sick. Um, and again, what is interesting, what we criticize a lot about it, and yesterday Martin was already talking about it, is that this, in order to calculate this decommodification, you need to make huge assumptions. 
And the most important assumption is the one of the average production worker. So the generosity of unemployment protection, pension, pension and sickness are evaluated looking at the average production worker. So a male, 40 years old, with 20 years of continuous contributions into the social security system. As somebody was enlightening yesterday, if we talk about decommodification, women that do not work or people that do not work, they're not even taken into account. So this concept imposes a very strong simplification of reality, which is a, a useful working assumption in order to calculate certain benefits. However, it is a very strong assumption, especially in a world that is changing a lot, in a world in which people don't have continuous employment, in a world in which it's very, very hard to have 20 years of continuous, of continuous contribution, especially for young people. Therefore, uh, somebody has argued that this model that has been Anderson portrayed describes only the insider's world, the world of people who are really inside the system and have a continuous employment. What about the others? They're not really described with this, with this, with this concept. So the scores were then summed it up together and... We will see what this, what this uh, gave into Espin Anderson classification. The second concept after decommodification is the one of social stratification. Other very interesting concept, a very important concept in the literature. So, social stratification was captured through a wide range of indicators of how welfare state key institutions operate in structuring class and social order. Very interesting is that the social stratification concept. It's based on the three principles of political movement. So the social stratification is measured by looking at how a country is based on socialist principles, how it's based on conservative principles, and how much is based in, 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 uh, in liberal principles. I won't go in the detail of all the indicators. We, I, mean, you can, you can, I mean, you can look at the book or the slides, or you probably know that better than me, uh, most of you. But these indicators are very, very different nature from the other one. There is not a final score. But as Pin Anderson say, you know, by looking at the number of private uh, healthcare programs, the, the amount of money spent in private healthcare programs or in pensions, how much a country was based on liberal principles, how much mean testing they were doing. So it kind of classifies country in a different way. And what is interesting, but we will see that more afterwards, is that this Espin Anderson, this is one of the, in my opinion, one of the main drawbacks of the book, he did a classification with decommodification, another one with social stratification, and he never tell us which is the right one or if they can come together. So all this ideal typical reasoning, all this work, and then we are left in this kind of uh, uh, empty space. What is interesting is that most people, when you talk to people about Espin Anderson, they will talk about decommodification. And very often, the majority of the work that we've been talking about before, so the empirical construction on Espin Anderson, are based on decommodification. That's because of data availability. That's because measuring decommodification is easier than measuring social stratification, and because somebody, uh, uh, in the particular case Lyle Scruggs, has reproduced Espin Anderson dataset. Another interesting thing is that until, until very recently, Espin Anderson didn't make the data available. So it was very hard for people to, to understand what was going on. So, you know, again, big deductive reasoning, big thinking, but a bit of lack of transparency, what we were talking about yesterday, right? So this book became a seminal book, but you know, there were there was some kind of lack of transparency in in in, in certain type in certain type of analysis. And what we come at the end with the final classification. So political economy, decommodification and, and stratification. There is a very strong judgment embedded in what Espin Anderson did, right? So Espin Anderson used a very famous framework, the one of Walter Corpy about class struggle. So how the relationship between the elite and the working class, and in general the underclass in, in certain countries, played and how the interplay generated these different worlds. So how different political movements handled this struggle and how the social security system was built, was built around it. But in this, Espin Anderson had a very, very strong, uh, we could say ideological judgment. Because if you read through the pages of the three world of welfare capitalism, you see that you have three types of welfare state. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, just to cite a very famous a very famous movie. The good is the social democratic model, the Scandinavian, the universal, the good one. And it's not by any chance that Espin Anderson is a Danish scholar. And then you have the bad, which is, you know, the liberal model, the means testing, the kind of, you know, market-oriented, no, 
no provisions, not enough provision from the state. And then the ugly, which is the kind of the conservative model, which is, you know, it's a bit more general than the, than the liberal, but, you know, it's not good as the Christian democratic. So, again, it was very interesting. So, Espinanderson started with the idea of solving the problem we were talking about yesterday, but then again, huh, even with deductive reasoning and typologies, we still go back to certain problems. And not to say that this typology is not useful, because I believe it's very useful and we use it in the articles, but again, even when we use deductive reasoning in order to solve the problem we're talking about, never forget that we go into other problems. What I've said for Espin Anderson, it could have been said for varieties of, varieties of capitalism in literature, so for the work of Ole and Soskis. Again, a lot of assumptions, a lot of simplification that help us on one side to classify many countries and to understand what's going on, but again, they propose different problems from the one we were analyzing yesterday. So here we have, as I was telling you, uh, this is probably a, a slide to be uh, uh, more look at when you, have, when you have the printed slides. But what is interesting here, you have uh, Espin Anderson categorized country according to decommodification, then he categorized country according to social certification. And what happened is, is that the two classifications are a bit different. Um, you know, countries are not put in the same box. But what comes up as a very clear result, and we will see comes up also through the analysis in our article, is that a certain number of countries, they are always in the same regime. In the communication and social certification classification, these countries fall into the same classification. Therefore, we can believe or we can reasonably argue that these countries are prototype, not ideal times, prototype of a system of a social security system. So the United States are clearly liberal in most of the features. France and Germany are clearly Christian democratic or conservative or whatever we want to call them. And then Denmark, Norway and Sweden are clearly, clearly social democratic slash, slash Scandinavian, of course. So what we have done after analyzing Espin Anderson, we would say, okay, so we have all this literature around us. We have Espin Anderson. Somebody yesterday was asking a question about doing a classification of classifications. That's what we have done. So we picked up all the classifications that were around us in the literature, and we would say, okay, so let's see, by using a certain type of criteria that you can see in the article, I won't go much more in this detail, but by looking at a certain type of criteria, we have selected 23 studies, and we have seen if and how much people have put countries into certain words. And then after that, we build up a continuum in order to describe, in order to describe this word, the welfare capitalist, to see if Espin Anderson still can be considered useful, useful or not, or how much the typologies that we have around us uh, describe, describe the word. Uh, by, doing this word by, by doing this work, we have, we have put countries in six different types, because in the literature, there are more or less six categories. Here we have excluded Southeast Asian countries, and we have focused only on the 18 OECD countries. In the article, we explain that this is because we believe, or we argue, that uh, European, Western European political movements cannot describe the Southeast Asian reality or the Latin American reality as much as, as they do. Some people believe that it's possible. We didn't. So we, we just analyzed the 18 OECD countries that Espin Anderson has analyzed. And this word are, of course, the social democratic, the Christian democratic, and the liberal, um, uh, uh, described by Espin Anderson. But then we added up the radical word, as I was telling you, proposed by Castles. We add up the Mediterranean model, which has been theorized by Lightfrit and Ferreira. And then we added up a category which is called hybrid, uh, in which you know, many people put countries that they don't, they've not been clearly classifying. And Charles Reagan was the first one. Um, to do that, to use this approach. Then we have classified countries, and we have said, okay, when a country is classified more than 80% of the time in the same regime type, it can be considered a prototype. It can fully be considered a member of that world, if we want to use as being honest in words. Then we look at country of a medium-high internal consistency, meaning being classified between 61% and 80% 80, 80 of the time in the same world. And then the countries were classified between 51% and 60% in the same world as medium internal consistency countries. And then we have excluded the Netherlands and Switzerland because they're classified less than 50% of the time in the same world. Therefore, we believe that they, they, there is no clarity in the literature where they should stay. 
for many reasons. And we will talk a bit in the next lecture about the Netherlands because it's a quite, quite interesting case. And the literature has been, there's been a lot of work by Dutch scholars about the Netherlands because the Dutch welfare state system is really, really hard to, to classify. Really, really hard to classify. So in this literature review, we will see, uh, I will show you this slide now, but then we will come back to this one, so don't worry about it now. These are the three main methods, quantitative methods, that have been used in this literature to classify countries. So we have descriptive statistics, cluster analysis, and principal component analysis. So we, we have, in our classification, we've analyzed all, all this work, all this, all this literature. And uh, this is what come up. Don't worry, we will have a clearer slides afterwards. But this is what come up quite clearly. If you remember before, I was telling you that there were six prototypes, six clear prototypes that we can see from S.P. Anderson. Among the Social Democratic, Sweden, Norway, and Denmark, where in the decommodification index and the social stratification index considered a social democratic. Again, as you can see, in Sweden, in all studies we've analyzed, it's considered social democratic, Norway 95% of the time, and Denmark 91% of the time. So more than 80%, the threshold we've been fixing before. If you look here, France and Denmark, uh, sorry, France and Germany are the two countries who are almost always 95% and 91% classified in the Christian Democratic world. And we had to add it up as well, Austria, because mm -hmm. more than 80% of the time it was classified in the same world. However, as S.P. Anderson suggested, France and Germany are really <coughs> almost always classified as, as Christian Democratic. And then the United States at the pure liberal model. So every classification we have analyzed put the United States into, into, into the liberal model. And then so forth. So we have the medium high consistency and the medium and the medium consistency. What we have done then is say, okay, so we, we conceived Espin Anderson, and Espin Anderson conceived himself as applying Weberian ideal types. So in order to apply Weberian ideal types, what we have done, we put countries on a continuum as a landmark, and we place all the others on this continuum in a continuum which goes from the social democratic to the liberal to the liberal model and this and this was the result so <coughs> as you can see here in the united states is the pure liberal type and these are the social democratic pure types and then all the other countries according to how many times fit into a word have been classified on a continuum. So we have Finland, which is social democratic, but many people have classified Finland also as a Christian democratic. So what we have done, when more than 25% of the classifications, when there was a secondary, very high secondary classification, so more than 25% of the time included in that word, we have added up a secondary component into this. So Finland is social democratic, but it has many Christian democratic elements embedded. Therefore, it's closer to the Christian democratic world. Then we have Belgium, which is Christian democratic, but in certain respect, very close to the social democratic model, especially if you think of unemployment protection, for example. <coughs> and then again, the pure types, so Austria, France, and, and, and Germany. Yeah. And then we have Italy. Interestingly, Italy, uh, it's often considered Christian democratic, but when a Mediterranean typology is used in the analysis. Italy always falls into a Mediterranean type. And Espinalison has explained that somehow. Italy was the only Mediterranean country included in Espinalison typology. But if you look at the following word that Espinalison did, uh, in which he talked about defamiliarization, it clearly creates a Mediterranean cluster, including Greece, Spain, and Portugal. And what Espin Anderson argued is that the Mediterranean model in reality is a less mature Christian democratic model. So it is a model which has similar principle to the Christian democratic one, but it has certain problems. And Ferreira did a very good description, I believe, of Mediterranean model explaining that they are based on clientelism and they have a lack of social protection if compared to the Christian democratic model. However, according to the majority classification, Italy falls into the Christian democratic model, as Espin Anderson was arguing. Then if you look at the liberals, um, US is our pure model. Then we have Ireland, which is a very strong secondary Christian democratic component. Once again, this is quite easy to explain. Very interesting work by Mary Daly, I think it's a 1999 article, in which she explains how inside the Irish 
welfare state system. There's a lot of kind of interplay between the liberal influence and the kind of Catholic, therefore, you know, the Christian democratic influence, especially if you look at family policy, for example. In this case, family policy is not considered because here we are only talking about decommodification. We will see uh, in the next session what happens when we look at defamilialization. But in many respects, Ireland has Christian democratic features. And if you look at Espin Anderson, when Espin Anderson looks at decommodification, Ireland is considered <coughs> as a Christian democratic, and when he looks at uh, social certification, it's considered liberal. Therefore, very strong secondary components, so quite, quite, quite of an idea. Then we have New Zealand, Australia, United Kingdom, and Canada. And New Zealand and Australia, very interestingly, and we will see in the next session in our, in our classification with multiple correspondence analysis, they're a bit different. They're a bit different from the liberal model uh, because, as Castles has argued, in these countries the means-tested principle is reversed. So the means-tested principle is applied on the other way around. So the only people who are at the top, they're excluded from a certain type of benefits and the other are included, rather than giving the benefits only to people who are in the bottom, in the bottom of the asylum, the two bottom decile of the income, of the income distribution. So liberal but reverted liberal, and Castles called that radical, and we will see that this come up in certain classifications. Then, then UK and Canada, UK, you know, we will see, we will see that UK is a quite interesting case in our MCA. We see it moves over the time. It moves over the time quite interestingly. And then Canada, which is quite close to the US, and then the US, that is, that is the, pure, the pure model. So, so far we've been talking about the past, right? So our article and, and what we've done talks about the past. So we have looked at what people have done, how people have classified countries, and again, never forget the, the reasons for doing it. We will, we, will, we will conclude on this note. But there are problems. There are problems in this, in this classification. First of all, Espin Anderson built up his typology with data of the 1980s. Despite the book, his 1990 book, his word are words that have been described, described 30 years ago. Now, one might argue, if you really believe in ideal types, countries should not move that much. Right? You can have a government, you can have stuff that can happen, but the nature of the system shouldn't move in 30 years. However, political scientists have emphasized that if the welfare state are based on the strength of political movements, what happens if in a country we have, in a country that is considered social democratic, we have a conservative party for three decades? Or what happens, what's the effect of the change in political movements? We will discuss it, and we will see that this is a problem the evolution over time. It's something that has been considered by some people in the literature, but not systematically. So we will, we will see in the next lecture, we approach this problem by looking at 30 years of evolution of welfare regime and see if countries really move and trying to explain also why if they move. The second thing is the Espin Anderson basis typologies on the work, what has been called work welfare nexus. So again, pension, unemployment protection, and sickness. But as somebody was, was, was highlighting yesterday, what about the women? What about family? What about all the important things in the welfare state? There's a very famous critique by Jane Lewis in 1992, a theoretical critique of Espin Anderson, Espin Anderson Ward. So what we have done then is say, okay, let's do not only look at the structure of the wars by looking at family policy, but let's integrate together these two nexus. So the work welfare and the care welfare and excise. So this is something that has not been done in the literature enough. <coughs> Some people have analyzed family policy, like for example, Claire Bambra, but people have not tried to integrate these two, these two nexa in trying to understand what was going on. And then, <coughs> main problem again, the average production worker. Again, everything we are saying with this macro data, never forget that these are macro data, most of them coming from the OECD, and then we will see another data set formulated by Anne Gauthier, are macro data, which are based on a very strong assumption, the one of the average production worker. And on top of that, these are outcome, these are data like kind of, the regulation is that an unemployed will get, I don't know, 67% of his salary as replacement in Germany. But we don't know if in reality people 
are receiving this benefit or not. As we know, as people who do, uh, as Robert would say, really serious studies on, on, on social policy, <laughs> only by looking at microdata we can really see if people are getting or not these benefits. Which are the constraints built up in the system to do not make people demanding for these benefits. And we will probably discover that there are many, many people who don't pick up these benefits. There are take-up ratio and other type of indicators that help at the macro level to disentangle it. But if we really want to know what's happening, we need to look at representative samples uh, of people. And this was one of the curiosities that moved forward this project, this idea of integrating the macro and the micro. And now, as Mark will say later on, uh, it's a very good idea at theoretical level, but then when you try to disentangle this link between this policy outcome data and what happened in reality with the microdata, sometimes it's not very easy to understand how much structures and how much policy making and how much certain things impact on the real life of people. And again, all the problems generated by this outcome data is that um, often they don't take into account the variation. Now, for, for the one of you uh, among you who are Germans or interested in German social policy, think about the arts reform. So in 2004, the arts reform profoundly changed the structure of unemployment protection in Germany, drastically reducing the replacement rate, but for certain people. And guess what? These certain people and is not the average production worker. But these people are young people, people have been working less. So if you pick up Scruggs data or the data that Espin Anderson used, and you look at Germany during the 2000s, and you look at the generosity of unemployment benefit, of unemployment protection, you will see a flat line. I've done that by myself. So you will see a flat line. However, the R3-4 impact on different people in a different way. Therefore, if we, we limit our analysis to the average production worker, we might think that Germany didn't move, remain a Christian democratic country. We will see that even doing that, Germany moves a bit. But, but we, we have a strong bias embedded in our analysis. Now, we will see this afternoon and tomorrow that disentangling this bias is a, is a tough business. However, even if we cannot solve this issue, this is something that needs to be taken into account. And uh, I send you back to very, to very good theoretical understanding of these problems in two articles published by Jonquist and Lyle Scruggs in the 2007 book that Martin was mentioning yesterday, <coughs> edited by Joachim Klassen on the problem of the dependent variable. And these two articles, they really explain more in detail than what I've done in these five minutes, what is the problem with this average production worker? And if there are possible solutions, we believe that one of the solutions was to integrate macro and micro, but um, Jonquist believed that a solution is to do kind of ma macro simulations. So, for example, considering, as the OECD is starting to do, different type of households, different type of people, and see what's the different level of generosity for these people. And Lyle Scruggs proposed to do that by updating uh, the, his data set, which is the reproduction of Espinarsen data set, by considering these different, these different family types. However... At present, it's impossible with macro data to consider this problem, or to disentangle this problem, or to do that in a very accurate way. Because we can have two, three types of family household, but the reality is much more complex, as we know from the example of the arts reform. But the example I've done for Germany can be applied to many other countries. Germany is particularly striking because the arts reform was something very harsh and lived as a, as a very big change in a country which tended to have a very generous unemployment, unemployment protection before. So before, so before going to the Q&A part of this talk, let's recap uh, what I've tried to explain. Uh, so first of all, Espin Anderson has a very, in my opinion, very strong heuristic importance, which remains there, despite we believe or not in this type of construction. As I was saying yesterday, somebody can tell me, but, you know, it's just a coincidence. Espinares and typologies are just a coincidence. They don't really, you know, Scandinavian countries are together. Christian democratic countries are Central Europe. Mediterranean Europe is different than the liberal, uh, isolated, you know, in their own islands, uh, one might argue. And, <coughs> however, if you look 
if you look at different type, you know, I mean, if you look at different type of typologies, like if you look at VOC literature, you will find a similar thing that the VOC literature is a kind of simplification of SP Nandesen because based on different criteria, it puts together coordinated economies, which we might say are the social democratic and the Christian democratic country, and then uh, the liberal, liberal economies, which are similar to the SP Nandesen liberal world, however, based on different criteria. But then we have the regulatory school who propose other classifications. So many people have proposed different classifications. And they all tend, whatever you do, they all tend to be the same. So somebody might argue, okay, good, heuristic device, very interesting, you link it to political movements, but whatever you do, this country always clusters together. So there might be something very profound that links this country together, which just might be geography or history <laughs> or whatever else. However, despite this problem, I still think the putting together political economy, the idea of decommodification, the idea of social stratification, the idea of measuring our country cluster is quite interesting. Think about the advantage of what you're analyzing three countries. So you're doing a comparative study like the one of Steinmott and Martin was talking yesterday, and you have Japan, Sweden, and US. Think how heuristically useful it is to conceive these three countries as three representatives of three different models and try to draw some general conclusion by the analysis of three countries for more than three countries. Again, this has some problem, this is not, but again, this country can be a landmark to understand then other countries and trying to classify them without analyzing um, all of them. We have also said in, our, in the session that there is a wide range of typologies in the literature. At some time, this business has been a bit you know, a bit crazy by saying different things and trying to put together different stuff. And we try to put a bit of, kind of clean up a bit this business. Another interesting article has been published by Art and Jellison in 2002, 2010, about trying to put in together all, all this classification. So despite this mess, you know, it is possible to find a kind of general drive, a kind of general ideas that move that. And we've also seen in the, the section called Regime Futures, that there is a problem and there is a need to integrate macro and micro, and we will try to do that. But in the next session, we will deal with the problem of time, so the fact that welfare typologies might not be fixed, and we need to find methods that will help us to compare countries over time. And uh, we will look at the work, work welfare and the care welfare next side in order to integrate all the aspects that S.P. Anderson has not, has not considered. And to conclude... A quote coming from our article. The conclusion of, of this article that again I repeat a few a bit about the time uh, uh, published for poli policy and politics um, and the last issue of 2011. So we conclude the article by saying that typologies are a fundamental heuristic tool for welfare state scholars, even for those who claim that in-depth analysis of a single case is more suited to capture the complexity of different social policy arrangements. Welfare typologies have the function to provide a comparative lens and place even the single case into a comparative perspective, as we were saying yesterday. So to paraphrase Goethe, those who know nothing of foreign languages, re read other welfare regimes, know nothing of their own. So wanderlust educates, so travel, travel educates, even traveling, sitting at your desk and looking at different, a different welfare state system. 